everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is KindredCast, our podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, the global merchant and investment bank. Today, we hear from Forerunner Ventures founder and managing director, Kirsten Green, in conversation with Liontree's very own entrepreneur-in-residence, Ariel Wengroff. Kirsten has invested in more than 80 companies and served on the boards of Dollar Shave Club and Bonobos, two forerunner portfolio companies with notable sale transactions. In addition to being one of Time 100's most influential people, she's been named a top 20 venture capitalist by the New York Times and has been part of Forbes' Midas list for four years running. Before we begin, for a quick rundown of the day's most engaging content and perspectives, be sure to check out Kindred Media's recently launched newsletter. Sign up for Take a Break with Kindred Media by clicking the link in our show notes. And now over to Kirsten and Ariel. Kirsten, thank you so much for coming on today. It's so nice to see your face. I know that things are incredibly busy for you always with what you're doing at Forerunner, but particularly with COVID going on right now. So first, I feel like I should ask, how are you today? Oh, Ari, well, thank you for the nice tee up. It's really an honor to be on your show with you. So thank you for inviting me. You know, I'm okay. It's hard to complain when your loved ones are healthy and you're able to do your work from home. It might not be as fun, but I can pretty much be as productive. So in the context of all the suffering that's going on in the world, I you know, have to keep how lucky I am at the, at the forefront. Yeah. I mean, we're absolutely at a moment of unknown balance equilibrium right now between business, personal lives, everything that's going on. And I think in the context of business, this conversation is so relevant because you've actually placed some very early and successful bets on companies like Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, Glossier, Away, um, many other modern brands focused on the next iteration of focusing on the consumer. And you know, if we read Forerunner's bio, it's an early stage venture capital firm dedicated to partnering with ambitious entrepreneurs who are addressing challenges and opportunities of today's changing commerce landscape. That certainly feels timely for today. And I am wondering what are some of the best and quickest responses that you've seen from your portfolio during this time? Well, let's see. It has been a really busy two months in everybody's lives, as you pointed out. And I think people's worlds really colliding because as everybody moves from the office to home, they've literally collided your home and your work life in a moment of so much uncertainty, if not chaos, to try to see through what's going on and have an idea about what are the right things to do to step up to the moment or seize the moment is incredibly hard for everybody and similarly in business. So the last two months, I would say, or three months have been like super all hands on deck. People really trying to first internalize what was going on and try to start to make sense of how it might impact their business, their employees, and their customers. And then to think about if the outlook for some period of time is filled with as much uncertainty, what are the things we need to do to assure ourselves for our business that we have as much chance of making it through this moment. And then to get into the next stage of after having an idea of where is our flexibility, how do we think about navigating with a cautious approach and getting to a place of where there is opportunity. 
from a business standpoint, that's kind of been the stages that we've gone through with lots of other little things in between. It's also mapped to the consumer. I have been generally for the last several months more surprised with how resilient the consumer has been, just given what I went to my worry place from the beginning. But as I witnessed the trend and stepped back to think about what the drivers of it were, I think in so many ways it, it makes sense. And when I talk about the trend, Ari, I'm thinking about you kick this off with the view on commerce. We do have you know, a lot of companies that play in that field. We also have companies that are also selling products or selling services, but aren't maybe in the goods category, they might be in the service category. So there's a little bit of difference going on between the two. But in general, when you think about shopping or buying, for the last couple of months, stores have been closed. The world has been shut down. People have been home and they've been sitting in front of their computers. They've been engaging with people on Zoom or they've been reading news. They've just been spending a lot more time online. And I think that's resulted in a lot of attention on online businesses and a lot of discovery happening online and a lot of chatting and sharing ideas, which in general has been pretty good for the online business. I think there's also an element of a lot of... First, it was shopping out of need and out of fear, so stocking up. And then I think there's the little like, I need to treat myself to something I've been stressed. I need to take care of myself because I'm stressed. I'm not spending money on other things, so I'm going to indulge and treat myself to this thing I've been wanting. And or now, maybe they have an eye towards, I might do something this summer. I might be able to leave my house and maybe I need something to mark that as a special moment. And so I think that amount of shopping has been lifting a good amount of businesses, particularly businesses that are designed to meet the modern customer and from a digital perspective and from a messaging perspective. There's been a share shift that's gone on in our portfolio. It's been mostly a benefit. Part of our job is be thinking about where is the path of progress? How are things changing? How are businesses changing? How are people changing? And really to try to have a view on mapping that out a handful of years. So maybe five years in the future, this is an idea that could have mass adoption and walk it back to today and say, today, is there enough interest in this area that you can get people to buy into the idea or the product or the service? If you think about this moment in time, it makes sense that those are the businesses that are capturing people's attention while we're going through all this change and people are maybe spending more time online and discovering things that way. But I think that's one of the reasons why we've always gone along is this aspect of the qualitative side of the business is so important in assessing empathy and observation and human connection and the way that people come together for their purchase decisions. And we can't see what those trends are in person, but I am wondering if you think the trends that are starting to show over the last three months are stable enough to make investment practices for the next six to 12 months for your business? I think most of what we've been seeing in the last couple of months on the business side has been an acceleration of trends that were already happening. We were kind of in some stage of early adoption, but early adoption, and again, on this path of the continuum of what do you think is relevant enough or supported by enough ideas that it will gain momentum and eventually become mainstream. Those are most of the things that we're trying to invest in. That is happening in the path of progress. You have an event like this. If you are a business that communicates with a person with that eye towards the future, you're more likely to capture that attention while change is happening. And while people are maybe thinking outside of their typical framework or their typical routines, that has played into accelerating some of the things that were 
increasingly relevant before this. And that's everything from the brand and a message to an activity. There's been a lot of talk or a lot of realization over the last few months that telehealth is a really viable way to engage with various aspects of healthcare. Distance learning is something that everybody just got thrown into because schools got shut down. Remote work is obviously something we've all gotten thrown into in a big way. The reason that there are telehealth offerings for consumers to grab onto, that there are distance learning tools for schools and students to learn, that there are remote work solutions is because those were already happening. People were already at the earlier stage of adoption. Those things were taking shape. They were being trialed. They were being used to varying degrees. And this moment has put them into the mainstream spotlight, capturing that additional adoption. Yeah. So many of the things that were seen as direct-to-consumer, where I wasn't sure if they could potentially take off, where it was seen as utility, like personal care, now can actually be a luxury. You're on the board of Nordstrom's, I believe, and have had a long history in understanding retail. And you know, I've heard some stories about you observing bags at Abercrombie, I believe. So I am wondering in a space that was trying to pivot to being more experiential, but really is now more about quickness and utility, what is the future of the retail category? And how do businesses that were trying to expand their offering with data respond to the unknowns around retail? Out of the current situation, need and necessity, businesses have been forced to flex new muscles. Your store is closed and you still want to be open for business. You want to keep some level of business alive. So suddenly your digital channel moves into focus. And you're focused at that point because of the limited options on how to make that experience better. What are the things that we can do to enhance that? I think a lot of that stuff People just felt like I'm going to step up to the plate and figure it out and we'll learn it while we go because at least we're making every effort to meet the customer. And that's mostly what good businesses are always trying to do, which is deliver a great customer experience and show that they're in touch with their consumer. And in a moment of crisis and in a moment of big changes, I think you have a little more freedom to learn on the fly and try on the fly. And you've seen a lot of retailers do that in a lot of different ways over the last couple of months. And those were things that I don't know, they were specifically on people's roadmap, but I do think they were, again, in the path of progress and things that people were trialing or going to get to, or some people were already doing it. And now everybody just jumped into the game. And when we get through this, because we will get through this, and the world opens up the way we knew it would, we will have also learned all of these other skills, strengths, ways of communicating, ways of doing business that we can put with the things that we knew that were tried and true before. The best companies can really make this work to their advantage, where they just put themselves on a warp speed timeline and they had a little bit of, if you want to call it a benefit, where they could focus their attention on one part of their business because the other part of the business was shut down. And that accelerated some of those efforts. That hits to the point of focus and constraint, which sometimes can be really challenging for an entrepreneurial team. How do you actually advise some of the companies that you're working with at this time to be focused and how much do you try to let them be free? In general, focus is key to achieving goals, whether they're business goals or personal goals. We sort of always work in a framework that asks, you know, as it relates to a particular company, for example, what's the big idea here? In the dreamiest scenario, what might this company look like in 10 years? What areas of the market will they change? Will they dominate in a positive way? Why will people's lives be better because of it? 
those are the big reasons oftentimes people want to pursue business or investors want to join or executives want to join on teams. It's important to have that vision because that sets a North Star for where you're going. But you have to, just as important, be able to pull it back to the moment that you're in and really say, okay, we have to go on a journey to earn the next chapter, if you will. When I think about taking that vision and dialing it all the way back to ground zero, what is the first thing you need to do to accomplish to demonstrate that the business is worthy, that the customer wants the next three things you have in mind that you can then work into? There's always a level of focus when you're operating in that kind of a cadence. And in the context of those chapters, if you will, there are events that happen that you have to zig and zag around. And some of them are more material than others. Clearly, this is a material moment. This is a moment where nobody was planning it in any of their business model planning. Everybody had to go back and sort of retrench and ask themselves, at this moment, what is the thing that I can do that either preserves my business and enhances my business? And one of the things I think about just kind of big picture thematically on that note is that the last decade, in so many ways, We've been operating without constraints. It's a positive economic cycle, the longest in history. Unemployment was the lowest in history. There was a lot of enthusiasm in our country around entrepreneurship of all different shapes and sizes, whether that was solopreneurship or gig economy or starting a venture-backed company or everything in between. That was really made possible by the growth that was happening. When you're in a moment where the world stops and you can't be looking at growth, you ask yourself, how do I create value? Where's the opportunity to create value? And to me, I think it's a huge opportunity to show your operational chops, to show the flexibility, the flexibility of your business model, the flexibility of your relationship with your users, the flexibility of your team to step up to the moment and to really you know, kind of get another hands-on layer of understanding about your business. I imagine there to be tremendous amount of value in that exercise and building up that muscle. And when you have that and you can put growth back on it, there's a lot of companies that can be better than ever in that context. I mean, I was actually going to bring up before COVID happened, of course, similar to digital media, direct-to-consumer was going through its own not reckoning, but many reconciliation of the fact that there was so much focus on growth for growth's sake over actually a business that was growing properly in some cases. And I do wonder if COVID is the extraordinarily unfortunate exercise that many businesses had to do when we all know the magic room in the word is lowered CAC. And what are the KPIs going forward for a lot of these portfolios when it's not growth first, it's operational and business solubility? Totally. This particular point is maybe a good example of the world working in strange or ominous or maybe good ways. That conversation had really started in earnest across a lot of business tables over the 12 months prior to COVID. We were starting to get to that place where some of the bloom was coming off of growth and people were questioning, growth does not equal a good business. Let's make sure that we're understanding what the fundamentals of a good business are. And the conversations around metrics that demonstrated that higher LTV to CAC, first order profitability, customer level profitability, leverage across your organization in terms of driving growth, but keeping your costs steady. Those things were starting to rise to the top of people's metric dashboards before this happened. Now it's a mandate. You have to do it because 
again, we're, we can't count on growth to save the day and we have to demonstrate the viability and the credibility of the business. And that usually ties to how are you going to make money on these things? Fortunately, we got a little primer coming into this because those conversations had been started. Yeah. To your point, as it being a foundation going forward, I think the question that I would have is, So much of direct-to-consumer is the ability to have a great customer experience because you have the ability to have an educational and lasting relationship with them. But in a crowded marketplace, how do you sort of advise your companies or the trends that you're seeing around having to have tough questions around Amazon or now Facebook Shop? Some of the different platform opportunities are those benefits. How do they weigh that out when, as we know, that means probably a less good experience sometimes or not a relationship with the customer that they want to have repeat purchase with or a lifetime of understanding? These are complicated topics and they're really fun topics. There's a lot of different ways to proceed that are quote unquote right. It depends in part on what your business goals are. If you have a business where you say, this product is so important, this product is so critical and so needed, we want to make sure that like it gets in as many people's hands as possible. Then you will have one view of how to view opportunity with all those platforms versus if you're like, we've got something that is, it's not for everybody. It's something that is tailored that we really feel it's appropriate for a certain audience. And there's a lot of constraints around how you deliver that. You will feel differently. Take it answer your question or where I think you're kind of going with it in terms of driving a conversation, I think one of the biggest opportunities and challenges for modern businesses that can start direct-to-consumer is thinking about how do they scale into the big opportunity. Let's say they come from a place that we want to deliver a great experience. That's core to our mission. I think that's something that business has been really focused on in particular, probably good businesses always, but it's become part of an ordinary course of conversation in the last decade. And that's really being driven by the consumer because the consumer is demanding that more than ever. And partly because they're educated, they're smart, they're savvy, and there's enough businesses that are offering that, that that just becomes the level of expectation that they operate with. One way to navigate that with an eye towards growth is to use your own direct relationship with the consumer that you can cultivate, whether that's on your site or whether that's on a store that you control the environment. That's where you make the big statement about here's everything we have to offer in terms of how we build and foster connections with consumers and have it be something that's really rooted in I'm so tired of this word, so I hesitate to use it, but it's appropriate authenticity. Yeah. (laughs) That allows you enough resonance with the consumer that they care about what you're doing. And that's usually not just about the product, but it's about the way you present the product, maybe the way you manufacture the product, what your marketing is that surrounds it, what your service proposition is to support it, all of that stuff. Think about that in its most dynamic framework as you can. Make sure you're hitting those notes in the experiences that you can control. And if you have a really good foundation for that, then as you think about going to the other platforms, what parts of that package can you take with you that will help tell enough of your story where you can feel proud of that, but know that there's a place where someone can come back to and get a full experience. With that in mind, what the requirement is, is to think about each of those platforms. This is true for marketing too, I think about what is unique about what's happening on that platform? What is the mentality when they come there? And how do I show up in a way where it's like, my business makes sense here? I'm going to really go out on a limb with this analogy, but... Please do. I think about business and brand building, almost like building friendships. 100%. As a person, I'm quite confident 
that at my core, I'm the same person wherever I go. I have the same set of values. I have the same ethos, the same level of integrity. But when I sit down and chat with my friends over a glass of wine, I'm going to have a different conversation and a different demeanor than when I get on a podcast with my friend Ari, Ari and we're chatting versus a podcast with somebody I don't know versus a stage to give a speech. You're the same person in all of those places, but you're showing different sides of yourself and different nuances of your character emerge or are showcased. I think the same is for business. You can't take the same ad and maybe you can't even take exactly the same offering and put it on every channel. It will look out of place in certain instances. That's where you lose the consumer. Because I think at the end of the day, we all, our humans, we're engaged in emotional, personal connections. We know that just by our instinct. And as we've been trained to enjoy that with businesses or entities too, we can snuff it out when somebody isn't showing up in the way that we would expect them or it's kind of not themselves today. Like business shows up that way too. So I think that's when you think about translating your business out. If you can keep the core tethered together, you can do it in a way that doesn't undermine the idea of, I want to be an authentic business that in many ways owns the experience. It's just, what is the experience on each place? Yeah. Today, there are way more platforms. So it's a more diversified offering and we have the most sophisticated generation that has led a psychographic shift in what is allowable. And I think to your point, what you're saying is a brand today has to earn the respect of their customer in a way that maybe they didn't before or in a different capacity. I mean, I was speaking with a very smart young person earlier today. And she was saying that when a brand feels right, it feels like you're buying your voice back. And I thought that was a really great way. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to bring this up later, but it does make me wonder with COVID, everything has actually pulled back a lot of sustainability practices, which has been such a core business offering for a lot of new businesses today because young people care about sustainability. And I'm wondering if you think that's a long-term shift or a short-term solution for the current climate? I think it's a long-term shift. Sustainability has been a conversation that has been unfolding for two decades. It's been happening too slowly, but it's been around. It is at a tipping point. And I'm so encouraged. When I feel discouraged about the world and I want to get encouraged, I think about like the youngest generation and the things that are on their mind and the principles that they're holding as they're thinking about their careers or their purchase decisions. Historically, sustainability It's been part of the conversation, but it's been a feature, not a foundation. So all things equal, I would pick something that is sustainable, but I'm not going to put on the priority stack of my decision-making matrix. And I think that's shifted. At scale, I don't think people are going to buy things that are three times as expensive or even two times or even one and a half times as expensive as sustainable. But I think that it's not an all things equal. It has real resonance in the purchase decision matrix for the younger generation, which is percolating up. I mean, I think a lot of the change that's happened with the consumer psyche over the last decade has been driven by information. We all have access to way more information than we've ever had. And so we have a lot more inputs that are shaping our frameworks for how we're approaching life and how we're making decisions and where we're setting priorities and preferences. And there's enough conversation now from enough different angles and enough different places that sustainability is critical for the earth and for human welfare. I think you can't ignore it anymore. I don't think people are willing to ignore it anymore. And I think 
There is, again, not fast enough, but a trend in business to adopt that too. And really the truth is the more people you get thinking like that, the more businesses you get thinking like that, the more refined the processes get and the more the cost can come down and then the more accessible it is. So there is a place where things converge in a way that gets the snowball going faster. And I don't know where we are on that path exactly, but to me, it feels like it is really picking up momentum. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it depends on industries. Fashion is different than personal care, for example, or the things that still feel like convenience or principal purchase. So we've gotten through a lot of the conversation without bringing up gender, which as a very strong woman who speaks a lot about it and leads on it, and as someone who spends a lot of time thinking and talking about it, it's always the thing like, do you actually focus on it in the moment? But as we know, COVID has greatly impacted women and minorities more than any other population. Time's Up released a report on how do you actually lead in a way that still incorporates diversity and make sure that an organization and leadership reflect our world today. And so I'm, I'm wondering also as like a founder of AllRaise, how do you hold companies accountable to leadership and diversity when foundational business principles are also at risk? And how do they see both as one and the same, because, you know, as someone who has spent a lot of time pitching to uh, many white men who are usually looking at their phone, I do wonder if you still feel like the conversation should be brought up as much and how you handle it in your own firm. Thank you for the very thoughtful question and presenting the super important topic. And I know we both feel strongly about Let's maybe riff from where we were with the sustainability conversation and the ball and kind of running with, you know, creating momentum and it starts to build on it. The hopeful side of me wants to say that the outsized amount of hardship that women are encountering during this COVID crisis is yet another way that we drive the point home about the unfair setup that we've been running on. It can't be like this. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Just in this moment, the job losses. Job losses have fallen on lower income workers on an outsized way, and they've fallen on women and minorities in an outsized way. Every job loss has exponential impact. Those have even more exponential impact when you imagine that many of those, particularly females, are also caregivers and their kids aren't in school. And they have to stay home. And now you're starting to think like, wow, like if women have to work or aren't at work, how does that impact the kids in a more extreme way? And it sort of just highlights like the pressure that's on women with respect to households. I say all of that. And I want to also say that it's not entirely a gender thing. Obviously, I think there's a lot of men that do participate in taking care of their kids and taking care of their households. My husband, for one, has been doing extra time during the last couple of months because my work has been insanely busy. Those things are like further bullet points on the spectrum of it's just not a level playing field. We're not set up for success in the way that we need to be. And so I hope that this is fuel to be used in a productive way. And as for the progress that was being made before, we have to feel even more impassioned about it now because of what's happening specifically and also just because of the threat of it maybe scaling back. It requires outsized vigilance. We're certainly not getting close to a tipping point on parity. I think that the conversation about the importance of diversity and diverse teams being better has made a lot of progress. I'd like to think, and I have the advantage of living in a place where people are more liberal and an industry where people are more liberal, but I think that more people than ever before believe in the power of diversity and we're seeing results for that. We just have to keep that conversation alive 
And maybe that means doing a little extra heavy lifting right now, um, you know, even relative to the work that was being done before. Forerunner is predominantly women, but I was joking with someone recently, like if you're a young person trying to get your foot in the door or make a career change right now. Are they supposed to, you know, hack into our Zoom? What will the new world version be of finding great candidates that don't always just come from great educational backgrounds, which can also be more of a challenge in these Yeah, times. I mean, I do. I think we're going to have to put the work in. I think we were having to put the work in before, and I think we have to put the work in even more, like we are in so many other ways, given the constraints of this moment in time. My hope is, is that the realization that diversity matters. It matters because it's a good thing. It's an important thing. It also matters because it drives better results. 100%. Plenty of studies to say that. I've sat in plenty of conversations over a 25 plus year career that I can attest to it. Once you buy into that idea, you can't help but take different actions. You just can't. So yes, you might have to work a little harder to hire that diverse team, but that is something that once your eyes have been open to it, you can't go back on it. Let's assume people want to hire excellence and they want to build teams for excellence. And once that's an idea that that's part of it, you have to make a commitment to it. A hundred percent. And then you have a team that actually can speak to a range of customer. Well, and these things do pick up momentum too, because once you get more diversity, it begets more diversity because the very benefit of that diverse group and those differing viewpoints are more likely to bring in other different points or have other different complements. I hope that we can use some of the challenge right now, like we are in other industries to like add another bullet point or another exclamation point on the many reasons that the trends that were started have to continue. And we're all going to have to fight harder and act more boldly for the things we really believe in when there's this much chaos going in. That has to be one of the upsides of going through a tough time. And the goal should be that we come out of it stronger and better. And I know that's really optimistic, but we got to stay optimistic. The power of the mind and the power of the push mentally is really an important ingredient in creating the future that you want. Hope, I believe, is one of the most powerful tools. Gloria Steinem always says, it's not like there's one person who holds a torch It's many people who get to hold the torch and it's their own responsibility. So I think your point that foundational chaos doesn't mean you get to remove the foundation of respect, which is at the core of the conversation because that brings equity to the business. Very well said. I would just love to know a little bit about who you are, how you started in the industry. You know, I'd heard also about a transitional point in your career where you felt in the business you were in, I think it was before you went from selling to the buying side that you almost felt like a victim or deep in your workplace. And I'd just love to know a bit, a bit about your background and how you figured out some of these key moments for yourself. A lot of your journey shows up in your work. I've always been a goal-oriented person. I've always felt like I really wanted to make the most of my life. This is a story I have not told before, but when I was growing up and I was in high school, I had spinal meningitis and I was in a coma for a week. I had an experience where it was close enough to maybe not being here. It shook my world in a way of what a gift life is. There are no guarantees. You've got to just make the most of every day you have. And I'm certainly not here to say that I have mastered that by any measure. But I do live my life holding that pretty darn close to me. That underpins a lot of hopefully how I show up in my relationships and my friendships, valuing people and valuing those interactions. 
And it certainly also shows up in how I spend my time. And a lot of that gets translated into your career. And so with that, you know, it's been about making the most of things, really trying to embrace the journey of life and to grow and to learn things along the way. It's a super rewarding way to live your life because it makes everything a little bit more interesting. There's something to be learned in everything. And I, again, I'm not saying I actually have mastered the art of doing that by any measure, but I'm committed to keep trying. While I've been trying to do a good job and make the most of whatever work I'm doing, I'm also always thinking about it in the context of learning about myself and checking myself and thinking about how does this align with who I am and my values? Am I growing and developing as a person? Am I getting enough diversity out of this experience? Some of that has made certain experiences or certain chapters have lasted longer because of that, because there's been a dynamic that I've been experiencing at the personal level, even if maybe I'm just doing the same thing from a job perspective. And then there's the moment where it's like the personal level really propels you in a different direction. I'll say that I didn't think I would be an entrepreneur. Some people tell a story about how they were destined to be an entrepreneur. They could never work for anyone else. That my husband would say that story. You know, he worked for someone else for like a minute after college and he's like, shoot, I got to do this myself. I sort of was more of the safety girl. I wanted to do a good job. And so the event you're referring to was a time in my career, 10 years into working, where I had, in any way that I valued, been supported that I was doing a good job. Felt like that I was continuing to earn the next layer of opportunity. And through a series of mergers and management changes, my group was dismantled and I was left without direction on what I would do at that particular firm. And they were really good to me in terms of giving me an opportunity and thinking about moving in a different department, but I felt super shattered. I felt like I had played by the rules. I'd done everything right. I beat the goals that they had set for me or that I had set for me. And somehow I was not, I didn't have a job. It became a personal journey. For me to think about how did I contribute to that scenario that left me feeling the way I was feeling. And I realized that I had put so much of myself into a job, maybe an outsized amount of it, that ultimately too wasn't in my control. And if I didn't know it then, I certainly know it now. Most of life is out of your control. You know, I think you really start living when you let go and give up on that a little bit. But I felt like I needed to take back some of myself. And that was really the seed that started my own entrepreneurial journey and my own self-discovery and a lot of exploration about why was I drawn to one job or what was I looking to get out of it. And through all of that, I learned that I had been in the right place in many ways because I love the investing side. In some ways, you're getting paid to learn all the time and to connect dots from all different kinds of places and to hopefully have some original thoughts about things. I love that aspect of it for sure. But what I also learned through all that work was how much I valued people, how much I valued relationships, and how much I liked the qualitative side of things. Ultimately, that's what led me to venture. In venture, so much of it is thinking, where's the future going? I've leveraged my business skills and my understanding of how businesses function and how numbers work and how models work and all of those things to be able to size markets and to be able to understand if one business is a good business relative to another business and how things will scale and how much money they will take. That's cable stakes type stuff. But really allowing yourself the room to like think about where's the world going? What's driving the world? How are people changing? How does business need to change to meet it? And what's the journey to get there? That's pretty dreamy stuff. 
And that's super fun. I love that part of it. And even then tying it back to like the starting point of a company, which is who's the customer you're going after? What's going on with them? How are you going to appeal to them? What are your tools to do that? How do you create something that's good for them? Because that's good for business and layering all those things together. And ultimately in venture in particular, working with founders, working side by side with founders and having that be a foundation. I think in a lot of ways, whether you're really good or successful at the job, that was the perfect combination of things to capture my attention and my passion the way it has. It sounds like at your core, it's about curiosity and personal responsibility and kindness, which can create a very dynamic opportunity for exploration. You are so good with words. You've always blown me away with how good you are at synthesizing and capturing ideas. Thank you for being able to synthesize my rambling a little bit. No, it's not a ramble. I think more people need to hear the humanity that exists at the core of business because business has inherently felt like an unapproachable subject for so many. And I do think that that's what prompts creative ideas through a framework of actual business that can lead it to success. And those topics have been dispersed for so long. And so it's really nice to hear someone's personal, and I think to your point, then professional context that comes through the lens of inherent human connection. One of the questions that I didn't ask you that was so clear in all of your answers is like, are you still curious and excited by consumers as new generations of them as they evolve? And that's obviously very clearly, yes, that's so important. To kind of riff off of what you were saying, the next wave of business has a lot more heart at the center of it. And I think that's because that's what people want and people need. And I also think it's because a lot of the opportunities exist in areas that ultimately are deeply meaningful to the human, whether that's healthcare or education or your career path or your security in life. Those are the things where I think there's the most opportunity for improved products, experiences, innovation. The successful ones need to hold the human at the center of their business that is the thing that I am really encouraged about for the next decade ahead of opportunity. What's so fascinating about that is those are the topics that up until recently, one would have thought the public good covers proficiently. That's the dreamy emotional side of it. You can get to the practical side of it, which is so much work has been done on what we loosely call the discretionary side of business that is truly just run in the private markets. Those businesses have been refined and improved and bettered and the experiences there are truly modern. There's probably still room for improvement and the consumer will push people that way. But on the other side, these things that have been institutionalized in many places, the government has played a role, healthcare, education, the financial industry, they have not moved in a way that's met the experience that's delivered on the discretionary side. And there's a whole host of reasons why it's too apparent right now that that's not enough. It's not going to work. The consumer knows it and business knows it. Business will start to address and adopt that opportunity for sure. I think that's really exciting. I agree with you a thousand percent. I think that business, which used to be focused to your point on the idea of the discretionary, will now make utility the essential outcome. I have a couple of speed round questions that I'm going to ask you. Those are always hard for me because usually I oh my God, I'm a boring person. I can't answer these questions. No, not at all. all. You're very good and fast and impressive. Don't be worried. Just immediate thought that comes to mind. Okay. Biggest sector to watch? Healthcare. Consolidation or investment? Investment. Mm, You paused. 
Well, I think a lot of both are going to happen. I think more is going to happen, but I think investment. I mean, I'm very enthusiastic about investing right now. Most important advice you've given your team in the last two months? This too shall pass and we have a chance to learn and grow and come better out of it. I mean, I really think one of the first things I thought was, oh, let's get it, guys. We're going to get so much more experience going through this. This is a moment for a lot of learning and a lot of growth if you embrace it with the right attitude interaction that you wish you could go back and change? Oh, gosh, Ari. Who doesn't have a list of those? I know. I want the best one. I'm sure I have a long list. I don't have one that's so bad that I'm walking around with it on my head on the forefront. Do you believe in second chances? Of course. Well, with that, I am conscious that we are over time and I'm deeply grateful to talk to you always. So thank you. And thank you so much for your thoughtful questions, Ari, and having me on today. Anytime. We are lucky. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Audiation.